Today, I am going to start a brand new series that I've entitled The Effects of Praise. This is a teaching that I did. I couldn't even tell you how many years ago. Uh, I know that uh, these, these uh, CDs that we had, the old set was made from 10 years ago, I think is the last time I made this. And so we're updating uh, this set. But I've been preaching on this for a very, very long time. This is one of the things that God has spoken into my life as just being absolutely foundational, essential to maintaining a godly balance in your life. As a matter of fact, I've often uh, characterized it this way, that you know, if a person was to pass out or if something was to happen, one of the very first things that a medical person will do is run up to them and check their pulse to see if their heart's still beating and see if they're alive. And in a sense, you, if you check your praise life, it's like checking your spiritual pulse. If you are not praising God and if you don't have a life that is just constantly thanksgiving and praise unto God, you are not spiritually healthy. Look at this passage here in Philippians chapter 4. And let me just once again put this into his context that Philippians was a letter that Paul wrote while he was in prison. And he was facing possible execution. He had been in prison for years. Paul was in a worse situation than you were, and yet he was praising God more than you are. And I think that there is a lesson to learn from this. So in Philippians chapter 4, he says in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. I believe that the reason he repeated this is because if he would have just said rejoice in the Lord always, there's a lot of people who would say, well, he couldn't have meant what he said. I mean, you know, you've got to understand that if you're going through a, a, you know, a death in a family, if you're going through a divorce, if you've lost your job, if you are sick and facing possible death, and he just couldn't have meant what he said. And so, so that nobody would misunderstand him, he said, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. In other words, he just emphasized it. And he says, I'm saying always. There is never a single time that we aren't supposed to be praising God and giving thanks unto God. And I know some of you are saying, well, I can see that the Bible says that, but how can you do it when? And then you start looking at your problems again. As we go through this series, I'm going to be showing you how you can do this. I'm going to show you how to overcome all of these negative things that are in your life. But the very first thing is you need to let God's Word be true and every man a liar. That's what Romans 3, 4 says. You need to take what God's Word says. And this is a direct command from God through Paul to the people he was writing to and it applies to you and me today. Regardless of what your search situation is, this says you are to rejoice in the Lord always. What part of always do you not understand? This means at all times, in all circumstances, in any situation. Regardless of what you're in, this is a command from God to rejoice. My son died. Some of you have heard me give this testimony, but... My wife and I, we came in late like at 2 o'clock in the morning from an overseas trip. We had just gotten to bed at 4.15. My oldest son called and said, Dad, I'm sorry to tell you, but Peter, that's my youngest son, is dead. And I asked him what happened. And I said, don't you let anybody touch him till we get there. And we had to get up and get dressed. It was an hour drive into Colorado Springs from our house. And... Um, you know what? Our cell phones, we live way out in the country. We didn't even have cell phones back then, but 
but cell phones don't even work out where we live and stuff. And so anyway, there we had to just uh, take that news. My wife and I immediately prayed over it. We got dressed. We started driving in, and during a 45, 50-minute drive in uh, to town, I started having the same feelings and emotions that any of you would have if you were told that your son was dead. And I started having grief and sorrow and all of these things. And yet, you know, this scripture about rejoice in the Lord always. I have just made a decision that, praise God, I am not going to gripe and complain. I am not going to focus on the negative. And I am not critical of anybody who does grieve and just is overwhelmed and overcome. I am not critical of you. I understand why it happens. I have felt some of those same things, but I'm saying it is the wrong response. I'm not trying to condemn you or to put you down, but I'm saying that the scripture says rejoice in the Lord always. And I just decided that I was going to rejoice in the Lord. I was not going to grieve. I was not going to become bitter I was not going to do these things. And I tell you, on the way in, I just out loud started rejoicing in the Lord. Now, I didn't have joy in my born-again spirit. I did, but in my emotions, I didn't feel joy. But I decided that I would rejoice. What I'm trying to do is to show you that you can rejoice. It's a verb. It's something you can do. You can praise God out of your mouth. You can say, Father, I love you. I praise you. You are a good God. And when we were driving in with this news that my son was dead, I just started thanking God, saying, God, you're a good God. Thank you. You didn't do this. Thank you for giving me the revelation that you don't sovereignly control everything. You did not kill my son, that you are a good God. And I just started praising God. And I'm telling you, when I started praising God, it's just like it primed the pump. It's like all of a sudden it greased the tracks and the power of God started moving and the anointing of God came upon me and I tell you, faith rose up on the inside of me. This is what it says over in Colossians chapter 2, verse 7, that you abound in faith with thanksgiving. And when I started giving thanks and praise unto God, I tell you, faith just rose up on the inside of me. God brought back to my remembrance prophecies about that boy that hadn't come to pass yet. And I knew that these prophecies were from God. And so that meant that if these were true godly prophecies, which they were about what would happen with him and they hadn't come to pass, that meant that he had to live. And I just, I mean, I started with no feeling of joy whatsoever, no feeling of praise, but I did it because the word said to do it. And I started praising God by nothing but faith. And as I did it, all of a sudden, this joy and the love and the peace that was in my heart, that was in my born again spirit, it just bubbled to the top. I tell you, I got so excited. I started laughing and praising God. All of this is after my son died. And I looked over at my wife as we were driving in. I said, this is going to be the greatest miracle that we've ever seen. And when we got into Colorado Springs, my son came rushing out to meet us. And he said, Dad, I don't know what happened. But five or 10 minutes after I called you, Peter just sat up and started talking. He was in a morgue. He had been dead for over four hours, somewhere between four and five hours. He was stripped naked. They had already put him in a cooler, had a toe tag on his toe. And after being dead for four or five hours, he was raised from the dead. 
And we went in and saw him and he was talking. He was totally coherent. There was no brain damage, no more than he had before. Praise God. That's what he said when uh, he came back. And I tell you today, it's just awesome. That was in 2001. And I'm telling you, all of this happened because of the power of praise. And there are some of you waiting until your situation is solved and then you're going to praise God. Anybody can praise God on the other side of the Red Sea. Anybody can praise God after you've come through and after your enemies are destroyed and after everything's just fine. But I'm telling you, it's faith and it is a high manifestation of faith for you to praise God on this side of the Red Sea when Pharaoh and his armies are still coming down on you, when it looks like you're trapped, when it looks like destruction is going to happen. When you start praising God, that's what sets apart a person who is spiritually mature and an immature Christian. Paul said, rejoice in the Lord always. I'm saying that you should be rejoicing and praising God. You should be giving thanks regardless of what is going on in your life. He goes on to say in the next verse, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, let your moderation be known unto all men. The Lord is at hand. Be careful for nothing. In other words, the word careful here is don't be anxious. Don't worry about anything. Again, many people say, well, I don't want to be anxious. I don't want to worry. But, and then they have all of these reasons. They point to this and this, and this is why. This just says don't ever be careful for anything. You know, often when I leave, people say, people will say, well, take care. And my response, usually under my breath, because I'm not trying to be confrontational and stuff, but under my breath, when people say, take care, I'll say, for nothing. <laughs> I am not going to take care. I am not going to worry. I'm going to cast all of my care upon him because he cares for me. I believe that's First Peter chapter 5, somewhere around verse 7 and 8. Be careful for nothing, but in everything. This says by, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Did you know that you should not be praying about your problem unless you do it with thanksgiving? The scripture says in Psalms 150, enter into his gate, or, or excuse me, that may be Psalms 100. But it says, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. In Matthew chapter 6, the script, when Jesus was talking about how to pray, He said, you say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You start with praise and then you end it with, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. You start with praise, you end with praise. And if you do have a problem, well then slip it in between all of this glory to God. What that does, it puts it into its proper context. The Lord wants to hear what's on your heart. The Lord wants you to come and bring your problems to it, but it's what I call a sandwich technique. You start with entering into His gates with praise. You end with, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. And if you have a problem, well then stick it in between all of these layers of praise and honor and glory to God. And what it'll do, it'll shrink your problem right down. And if we would approach God that way and say, Father, I've got this problem. I have this need, but... I am going to enter your gates with thanksgiving because you are such an awesome God that this is no problem with you. 
and you start praising him and talking about how big he is, that he's bigger than your problem, then you slip in your request and then you end by saying, oh, Father, yours is the kingdom, the honor, the glory forever. You are all powerful. I know that this is done. I take my care. I cast it over on you. And so you deal with your problems, but you deal with it in faith instead of in fear, instead of in griping, instead of complaining. See, that's what this is saying. Don't be careful for anything. There are some of you that can't hardly sleep at night because you've taken your problems to bed with you. Even though you go to sleep, your dreams are all about failure and stuff. You are violating this scripture. You're violating the ones over in 1 Peter chapter 5 where it says, uh, cast all of your care upon him because he cares for you. And instead of you casting your care upon him, you are carrying it. You are holding on to it. I am not saying these things to condemn you, but I'm saying it to say that that is not right. Today, the people that don't know the Lord, of course, they aren't going to be telling you this. They're going to be telling you that, oh, you are supposed to be depressed and discouraged. Matter of fact, psychology has told people if they don't, have all of these problems and stuff, well, then you are in denial. You're supposed to grieve. You're supposed to hurt. If somebody rejects you, this is just normal. All of these things are without the Lord. But with the Lord, we are supposed to be careful for nothing, but we are supposed to, in prayer and supplication, let our request be made known with thanksgiving unto the Lord. And then it says in verse 7, And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You know, there's some of you trying to say, well, now how could this, or how could this, you know, possibly be? I can't explain it to you, but I am telling you, I have done what the Word says. I have rejoiced when I felt like crying. And there is just a supernatural peace from God. It passes understanding. It is not logical. But I have been in the midst of situations where I should be upset. By, I'm talking about just normal standards, by the world's standards, by looking at things without God. You know, they would say, you're in denial. You, you aren't acknowledging the problem. And yet because I have taken my request to the Lord, I've cast my care about it over on the Lord, there's just a supernatural peace. And I just know, I don't know how, but I know somehow I'm going to come through this thing. I know it's going to work. And there is just a supernatural peace. I'm telling you, God is greater than your problem. Prayer is the strongest force on the earth. It is infinitely greater than cancer, greater than ALS, multiple sclerosis, any disease that you could possibly imagine. And it is weird for you to go around bearing care. Now again, I'm not saying this to condemn anybody, but I am trying to say that we have let the world's standard become the Christian standard. And we look at the way people without the Lord react. And if we react any differently, well, we think we're weird. No, they're weird for not understanding and believing in God and in the power of prayer. And if you could truly understand this, then you just take your prayers to the Lord you let your request be made known with thanksgiving and the peace of God, which passes understanding, will keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And look at this next verse. Verse 8, it says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue... And if there be any praise, think on these things. That is powerful. That is amazing. 
And I tell you what, there's not very many Christians that follow this instruction right here. As a matter of fact, I don't minister anything to you that hadn't already. It's something that God has already ministered to me. And one of the reasons I'm ministering this is because God has spoken to me lately about how I have focused on things that need to be done and the negatives and stuff. And God has spoken to me about how I need to be much more positive. I need to be praising Him much more than what I do. And I tell you, this verse challenges me. Think about this. Do you think on things that are true? Paul is saying, think on things that are true. If we just followed that one thing right there, most of us would have to nearly get rid of, I don't know, 80, 90% of the stuff we watch on television, much of the stuff that we listen to, many of the things that we read, it's just not true. You're supposed to think on things that are true. You're supposed to think on things that are honest. Again, we could spend a lot of time on each one of these things, but there is so much dishonesty, misrepresentation of everything. And then it says, whatsoever things are just. What is just? What is righteous? What is the right thing? There are right standards and wrongs. Again, today, our society, there, everything is relative. There is nothing that is absolutely wrong, nothing that is absolutely right. But, but that is not scriptural. There are things that are right. There are things that are just. And it says, whatsoever things are pure. Boy, now this is really important. Even if you could find something on TV that's pure, yet the commercials will kill you. They aren't pure. It says, whatsoever things are lovely. Man, it's, it's like so much of what's on television and in print today and stuff is all glorifying ungodly things and magnifying these dark things. It's not lovely. It's not good. It says, whatsoever things are of good report. If there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. Again, I go back to the fact that Paul is the one who wrote this book. He wrote it from prison. He was facing possible execution and he was in prison unjustly. He did not do anything to deserve it. And it made it clear if you read about this in the book of Acts, he was kept in prison for over two years unjustly just so that they could show a favor to the Jews. He was a political pawn. And finally, he had to appeal to Caesar and then he was shipped to Rome. And during that uh, uh, journey, he was shipwrecked and on and on. And then he was in prison in Rome for a number of years. So he spent years and years in prison. And their prisons weren't like our prisons. They didn't have a flat screen TV. They didn't have prisoner rights. I guarantee you, they abused them. They did not treat them well. It was prison. It was harsh. It was hurtful. And Paul, in this negative situation, was saying, Rejoice in the Lord always. Think on the things that are honest, pure, lovely, of good report. If there's virtue, if there's praise, think on these things. Paul was writing this from a Roman prison. Paul was writing this being a political prisoner that had been treated unjustly for years. And yet Paul was saying, Think on these things that are honest and pure. See, some people think, well, you just can't do that because this is not our situation. Paul was in a situation that was worse than ours. Paul's government situation in his day, the way he was treated, made what happened to you and me seem small in comparison. And yet Paul was rejoicing. Paul went on to say down here in Philippians chapter 4 and in verse 10, he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, 
Now that at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein you were also careful, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Paul was writing from prison, facing possible execution, treated unjustly, hindered from doing what God had put in his heart. Paul was in a bad situation, and yet he says, I am rejoicing in the Lord greatly. I have learned in whatsoever state I am therein to be content. The point I'm trying to get across is that we do not have an excuse for not rejoicing. There are reasons, and it's because we have drunk the Kool-Aid of this world. We think that all of our problems have to be solved before we rejoice. We don't understand that you can rejoice when you don't feel any joy and there are reasons why we are in the situation we're in, but there isn't an excuse. You do not have an excuse not to be praising God. There may be circumstances, there may be reasons, but there is no excuse. You can bless the Lord at all times, Psalms 34, 1. His praise can continually be in your mouth. Praise is something that you do as a discipline, you do it because it glorifies God. You do it because it changes your heart. I tell you, praise changes your focus. And there's a lot of people that don't think that way. You know, Jesus said the night before His crucifixion in, in John 14, 15, and 16, He gave instructions to His disciples. He told them not to let their heart be troubled in John 14, 1. And most people would think... You know, if you were to take a psychologist today, if you were to take a typical Christian today, and if they knew what was coming, they knew that Jesus was going to be crucified, that His disciples were going to be in danger, that they were going to come looking for them. There was a possibility that all of them could be killed. And if in this situation, and if somebody stood up and said, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. The average Christian today would condemn Jesus for saying that and saying, this is unreasonable. You don't understand. This person is going through a hard time. You're supposed to be compassionate towards them. You're supposed to get down and grieve with them. And you're supposed to say, I know you're only human and, and it's going to be all right. And it's okay. Just, you know, you're in denial if you didn't do all of this. That's the way that the Christian realm would have responded to Jesus. But Jesus told His disciples the night before His crucifixion, don't let your heart be troubled. It was a command. It wasn't a suggestion. It was a command. Do not let your heart be troubled. In John chapter 16, verse 1, He says, These things I'm speaking unto you that you would not uh, have your heart troubled. He was doing these things specifically to help them. And I'm telling you, the average Christian today if you start praising God, people will think something's wrong with you. And I'm not saying again that we act like nothing has happened, but I'm saying that we go beyond what has happened to see it in a positive light and we rejoice in the Lord always. You need to get to where you don't just, you know, praise God if something spectacular happens, but you praise God even when you're going through the valley, even when things don't look good. Look at this passage of Scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 45, it says, Moreover, all these curses shall come upon thee and shall pursue thee and overtake thee till thou be destroyed, because thou hearkenest not unto the voice of the Lord thy God to keep His commandments and His statutes which He commanded thee. And they shall be upon thee for a sign and for a wonder and upon thy seed forever, because 
you serve not the Lord your God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart for the abundance of all things. Therefore shalt thou serve thine enemies, which the Lord shall send against thee in hunger and in thirst and in nakedness and in want of all things. And he shall put a yoke of iron upon thy neck until he hath destroyed thee. Now let me say that this is Old Covenant and Deuteronomy 28 verses 15 through 68 are the curses that would come upon us if we didn't obey God. Praise God for Jesus because Jesus took this curse for us. He became a curse and us under the new covenant will not experience this wrath and this punishment that this is speaking about. So this doesn't apply directly to us because we've been redeemed from this curse. But nonetheless, it shows why God brought this curse upon the Israelites and there's still lessons to learn through it. And one of the things that I wanted you to see is that he said, because they did not serve the Lord with joyfulness and gladness of heart for the abundance of all things. That is why God brought this judgment upon them. So this shows that God holds us responsible for rejoicing and praising Him and being thankful for all of the good things that He's given us. Now that is a major statement right there by the very fact that He is holding them accountable and bringing judgment upon them because they wouldn't praise Him and thank Him for all of the good things that have happened. That shows that this is not optional. You are responsible. You are accountable to God for how your emotions go. And some of you are responding to what I'm saying by saying, oh boy, this is great. All you're doing is heaping more guilt and condemnation upon me and it's just making you feel worse. I'm not trying to condemn you, but I'm saying that you will never break out of this cycle of murmuring and complaining if you don't recognize that God commanded you to praise the Lord, bless the Lord at all times. Psalms chapter 34, verse 1, His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Philippians chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. In John chapter 16, verse 63, right at the end of that uh, those three chapters that I mentioned earlier where Jesus was speaking to His disciples the night before His crucifixion. The last thing He said to them before He left to go to the Garden of Gethsemane and pray and then was taken captive and was crucified. The last thing He said in John 16, 33, He says, uh, In the world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Right there in that one verse, he put it all together. He showed that he wasn't telling you just to rejoice when everything was good. He says, you are going to have tribulation. Specifically, like in the next few minutes. Amen. When I go to the garden, you're going to see the soldiers come. I'm going to be arrested. You're going to see me beaten. You're going to see me crucified. You're, it's going to look like everything has failed, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. He didn't say, I'm going to overcome the world. I have already overcome the world. Whatever you're going through, it's already been overcome. If you're facing a death sentence, some incurable disease, God has already overcome it. If you're facing a divorce, God has already overcome the rejection and the hurt and the pain and all of these things. He bore them for you. If you're facing death, it doesn't matter. God has already conquered death and you're going to live forever. God has already done it and He told you even when you are in the midst of tribulation, be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. It's a command. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, many of you I know are bowing your back 
You're, you're resisting this, thinking, well, you just don't understand my situation. I'm saying you don't understand how much God has done for you. And this is the reason, this is the primary reason that most people do not praise God is because they aren't focused on what God has done for them. They're focused on what Satan is trying to do in their life. They're focused on their problems. They're focused on the opposition, on the sickness, on the poverty or whatever. But I'm telling you, God's supply is greater than your need. Whatever it is that's coming against you, God has already solved it. And if worse came to worse, the worst thing that could happen to any person is that you die and go to be with the Lord. Did you know if you understood things properly, you could rejoice even at that. The Apostle Paul, again, I've used some scriptures already out of Philippians, but in Philippians chapter 1, he was facing imminent death. He was possibly going to be killed. And he discussed this and he says, you know, I'm in a strait between two. I don't know. I want to go and to be with the Lord, which is far better, but I think it's necessary that I stay here and minister to you. So I'm confident I'll stay here. But he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is better. And because of that, Paul, even in a situation where he was unjustly accused, he was in prison for four or five years, he was treated badly, he had all of these things happen to him, he was rejoicing in the Lord and saying, man, he was just awesome. He was praising God and thanking God in terrible situations. Because the worst thing that could happen to him is that he would die and go to be with the Lord. You know, we sing these songs about when we all get to heaven, what a day that will be and further along. And we talk about how wonderful heaven is. And then the doctor tells you you're going there. And all of a sudden you start crying and acting like, you know, it's the end of the world. There's something, there's a disconnect here. If heaven's really this wonderful, if we were really thinking in faith instead of in fear and in selfishness, if we were to lift up our eyes and look at the long term instead of just be short term minded, you know what? If the doctor told you you were going to die, it'd be, if you were thinking correctly, it would be all you could do to keep from just reaching up and kissing him, saying that's awesome. This is awesome. Man, today I could see Jesus. My faith could become sight. I know some of you think, man, you're weird. Well, I think you're weird. I've said this a lot. When you start praising God, people who only look at the circumstances can't see why you're doing this. They think you've lost your mind. Well, I actually have lost my mind. I lost my mind and I'm using the mind of Christ. I'm looking at things as Jesus did. Jesus told his disciples, you know, when he was going towards the cross and he fell down and these women came up and they were weeping and he says, don't weep for me. You weep for yourself. You weep for those who've rejected me, those who are crucifying me. Jesus knew he was going to see his father. Jesus is the one that had that attitude. And you know what? I've gotten my mind renewed. I'm not perfect in it, but I'm getting there and I'm beginning to look at things through the eyes of Jesus. And I'm telling you, we ought to be praising God regardless of what's going on. The worst that could happen is that we go to be with Jesus and spend eternity in heaven. We know no more sickness, no more sorrow, no more pain. It's going to be a blast. It's going to be awesome. And you shouldn't be acting like you weren't going to be with Jesus. Now, I believe in healing. I believe that God wants you well. And so I believe that the best thing is for us to get well. And if it's your time to go, well, then just give up the ghost and go. You don't have to die sick. 
So I don't believe you have to die sick. I don't believe you have to die poor. I don't believe that you have to have all of these things. But if your faith isn't functional the way that it should, and if you never saw your healing come to pass, well, it wouldn't matter. You could still rejoice. You could still be praising God that you are soon going to be out of this physical body. You are going to be in a glorified body that is incapable of being sick and having pain. The former things won't even come to mind. We won't even remember it. If you, I believe that it's God's will for us to prosper financially, but if your faith never worked and if you never saw financial prosperity operate in your life, you are going to live forever in a mansion that God has built for you. Did you know He created the worlds in six days? I mean the universe. Everything was created in six days. He said in John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, that He was going to prepare a mansion for us, and He's been working on that for 2,000 years. If it only took six days to create the universe, think what your mansion, my mansion, are going to be like if He's been working on that for 2,000 years. The streets are going to be paved with gold. I believe in prosperity, but if you never saw prosperity happen in this life, you should still be able to rejoice because you are going to live in splendor throughout all eternity. Praise God. And on and on we could go with these comparisons. If you were really looking at things properly, you do not have a reason not to be praising God. If you win, well, then you win. If you lose, you win because you've already won through Jesus. He's already overcome the world. And even if you lose in this life and never saw the full fulfillment of what Jesus has purchased for you, you are going to experience it for all eternity. Did you know compared to eternity, this life is just, I mean, it's nearly unmeasurable. Eternity means forever and ever and ever. Some people say, but I've been believing God for a month. I've been standing on this for a year. Compared to eternity, that's nothing. Let me turn over and use these verses out of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is the Apostle Paul talking. And if you were to read the first part of this fourth chapter, he's talking about how that it seems like he and the other apostles suffered more than anybody else. The people they ministered to, they receive the word and it prospers them and they get blessed. But the apostles themselves just suffer. And he's talking about all of his hardships. And in verse 17... After talking about all of this, he says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal or temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now, this is the reason I bring this up is to say that the Apostle Paul here was saying it's just a light affliction. And some people think, well, that's the difference is Paul didn't have any problems. I've got problems. I've got big problems. Let me just turn over and read a few of Paul's light afflictions to you for a moment. And he says, I'm glorying. I'm saying things that typically he wouldn't say. But since they were carnal, he just got down on a carnal realm and began to start dealing with them in terms that they could understand. And he started talking about all of his problems. And he says... In verse uh, 21, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-one, 21, I speak as concerning reproach, as though we had been weak. Howbeit whereinsoever any is bold, I speak foolishly. In other words, he says, I'm speaking like a lost person. This is not really godly logic, but since you're carnal, I'll just get down carnal and reason with you. He says, I am bold also. 
Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. Again, that's a reference to speaking like a person that doesn't know the Lord. I am more in labors, more abundant. Now look at some of the things he went through. It says here in stripes above measure. This means that he had been whipped so many times he couldn't count the stripes. How many of you can say that? I bet you there's not a one. There might be somebody, but he was beaten so often that he couldn't even count them all. He says in prisons more frequent. He had been in prison more than anybody else. How many of you have been in prison? Some of you have probably been in prison because you did something wrong, not because of your godly witness. But Paul had been imprisoned in unjustly many, many times, frequently. It says in deaths off. Matter of fact, he even said over in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, I died daily. He wasn't talking about that he physically died and was raised from the dead, but he was talking about all of the conflict, the hurt, the pains, all of these things. He was facing death on a daily basis. He says, of the Jews, five times received I 40 stripes, save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day have I been in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides all of those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of the churches. Paul went through these terrible, terrible afflictions, things that were worse than what you're going through and what I'm going through. And yet Paul said, it's just a light affliction. Now, if Paul had more severe problems and yet he just said it was a light affliction, then that shows you that this, your affliction is not directly related to the problems you have. It's related to how you process, how you put it into context how you deal with it. You know, I don't know that I have the right words to say this, but hopefully this will help you to understand that you place a value on the things that happen in your life. You're the one who decide that you can't make it without this person. You can't make it without this standard of living. You can't make it without this level of health or acceptance or fame or fortune. You're the one who places those values on things in your life. I know some of you are thinking, no, this is just normal. This is natural. Everybody feels this way. No, you place a value on everything. You know, I was going up Pikes Peak once with a friend of mine. And uh, as we were walking, we were talking about some things. And he, he mentioned this, this pastor of a church who was a friend of mine, but he criticized me and he criticized this other guy. And even though he was a friend, he constantly was running us down and saying negative things about us. We had discussed this before. And anyway, he, he brought up the newest thing. He says, have you heard the latest thing that this guy said about you? And, he started to tell me and I said, hey, I just don't want to hear it. And so he quit for just a few moments, but then he came back and he said, but he said this. And he started telling me again what this guy said. And I said, look, I just don't want to hear it. I know that the guy doesn't like me. I know he criticizes me. And I said, I just as soon not know everything that he's saying about me. 
And he got quiet for about 10 minutes and finally we were sitting down resting and he, he says, why doesn't it bother you what this guy says about you? And I said, it's because I don't value his opinion the way that you do. Now that's an important statement right there. And whether you know it or not, if somebody has criticized you, if somebody has neglected you, if somebody has um, you know, done anything to you and if you've taken an offense and if you're grieving over it, you know why it bothers you so much? Because of the value that you placed upon this person's acceptance. Now, I'm not saying that we ought to go through life just, you know, offending people and if they're mad at us, who cares? I'm not saying that. God made us to get along with people to, for acceptance. There's something wrong with you if you lack rejection. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that you need to get to a place that you are so focused upon God and His love and acceptance for you is the only thing that you absolutely cannot live without. When you elevate a person and think that I just can't live without this person, I can't live without their acceptance, without their love, then you have just made yourself vulnerable and you placed an undue value on that person. You know, I believe that we're supposed to value our mate. I believe that we're supposed to love our mate. And I am not by any means trying to diminish that. But I'm saying that look at like Moses. Moses, his wife didn't agree with him going back to Egypt. She got mad and she actually left and went back to her father. And Moses went down to Egypt and he delivered the children of Israel, saw these 10 plagues come. He saw the Red Sea parted and he did all of that while he was separated from his wife. They were having marital problems and, and Moses still was able to accomplish God's will. Now I believe that Moses loves Zipporah and I don't believe that uh, we are supposed to not love our mate and get to where we don't care about them. But I'm saying you need to be so focused on God that even if your mate's separated, even if you've gone through a divorce, even if you're having problems, that you can still do what God called you to do. Now, am I saying that you don't care about your marriage? No, but I'm saying that in a relative sense, there needs to be this priority upon God and the things of God and your personal relationship with God but again, even in our Christian realm, we have put such a high priority on our marriage that there are some people, if your mate doesn't love you the way that they're supposed to, if they aren't unified with you in your faith with the Lord, that that is just a justification for you to be down in the dumps and discouraged and sad and all of these things. Am I saying that marriage isn't important? No, but I'm saying that relative to God and your personal relationship with God, there is nothing as important as that. And you have to put this relative worth and priority upon God. And if you do that, you could rejoice even if you're going through a divorce. We, don't, we aren't the perfect people and there's things that we do wrong. And so to some degree, maybe in a small degree, sometimes in a large degree, but to some degree, if you're going through a divorce, if you've been divorced, there were things that you did. There were mistakes that you made. You contributed to the divorce. So in a, in, to some degree, you were responsible. But did you know what? Regardless of how bad you are, God will never divorce you. Once He accepts you, He will never leave you nor forsake you. And you could praise God through that. Instead of focusing on your mate who rejected you, you could focus on God and say, thank you, Father, that you'll never reject me. You could praise God for that. Again, I'm saying I don't care what you're going through. 
It doesn't matter. If they say that you're dying, you're going to go to be with the Lord forever. If you thought about things properly, you could rejoice in any situation. There is no situation that justifies you being down in the dumps and discouraged. Now, again, am I saying you just bury your head in the sand and act like there aren't any problems? I'm, no, you can confront your problems. You can acknowledge this problem. But regardless of how bad your problem is, the supply that God has for you is infinitely greater than your problem. It's so much greater that if you were to be looking at this properly with the right attitude, your problem is so insignificant, it's not really worth mentioning. And I know that there's people offended by what I'm saying because you take great satisfaction in getting people to pity you and talk about how bad your situation is and you get sympathy and stuff like that. But I tell you what, as long as you approach it that way, you are the victim, you'll never be the victor. You are going to have to start praising God and looking on the positive side of it and work your way through this. The Apostle Paul said it was just a light affliction and it wasn't because he didn't have problems. He had more problems than you and I have, but it's the way he processed it. You know, you can take, for instance, financial situations. In 2008 and the beginning of 2009, we had what many people call the Great Recession. And they talked about that, man, this is just terrible. And I know that in Colorado Springs, where I'm located, there are hundreds of parachurch ministries. And I know some of the ministries and I have access to what goes on behind the scenes. And when this first happened and they started putting the stimulus money in and they started predicting all of these things and the stock market crashed and went down, I forget what it was, but, you know, close to 50% or whatever the, the deal was. Uh, people were just projecting all of this bad stuff. And most of these nonprofits decreased their budgets and started planning on failure and lack of revenue and stuff. And they started trying to deal with the problem before there was actually any decline whatsoever. It was just fear motivated. Did you know during that exact same period of time is when God spoke to me about it was time to expand? and that we needed to start constructing a major Bible college campus up in Woodland Park, Colorado. And we embarked on a project that the first phase of it was $32 million and God told me to do it debt-free. This was during the Great Recession. And so other people were sitting here operating in fear, cutting back, decreasing. At the very time when people were hurting and open to help, they The world system was failing. It would have been a great time for the Christians to rush in and expand their outreach, expand their television, radio, their other outreaches and reach out to people. And yet many Christians were operating in fear. So the reason I bring all this up is to say that I went through the exact same great recession that everyone else had. And yet instead of me pulling back Instead of fear, it caught, man, God spoke to me and I increased and I embarked on the greatest uh, expansion that we've ever had. And in three or four, uh, I think it was three and a half years time, we finished a $32 million building project up there debt free. And that's not the end of it. I've now embarked on a $53 million building project and we are working our way through that and we're going to do it debt free. 
And what I'm saying is, see, some people think you can't, you can't rejoice under this circumstance. Well, most people would say you can't expand under a economic downturn, and yet I did. I'm telling you, it's not what's going on out there. It's the way you process it in your mind and in your heart that determines how you react. And I rejoiced all the way through the Great Recession. We had the largest increase, the largest uh, income that we have ever had, not because of what was going on external, but because I chose to rejoice in the midst of a situation that was causing other people to weep and complain. You know, when that Great Recession first happened, if you will remember, there were people that were committing suicide because they were seeing the end of their fortune. There was many of these very wealthy people that committed suicide and just terrible things happened. And during the exact same time, I prospered greater than I ever have. I'm not saying that to pat myself on the back. I'm saying that to thank God and to say that this works. You can rejoice. You can put things into their proper perspective and you can say it's just a light affliction. It's just, you know, it's just the great recession. Who cares? That doesn't affect God. God said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, that I, my God shall supply all of your needs. Paul said that speaking for God. My God shall supply all of your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. God is not limited unless you limit Him. And I'm telling you, you can go beyond your problem. You can look beyond that and you can find something to praise God for. You know, I've used these verses, but let me just go back and refer to this. In John chapter 14, this is the night before His crucifixion. And in John chapter 14, Jesus starts by saying, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Man, I've got a huge series that I, I taught 15 or 16 uh, lessons through John 14, 15, and 16. It's called the Christian Survival Kit. I hadn't taught on that in a long, long time, but it's still a great, great teaching. You could probably go to our website and find it. But I, anyway, in there, I taught for two hours on John 14, 1 about don't let your heart be troubled. The very way that it stated, He wouldn't have commanded you to not let your heart be troubled if you couldn't keep your heart from being troubled. It would have been unjust to command us to do something that we can't do. And so you can control your emotions. You can uh, operate in joy and praise and thanksgiving even when you don't feel like it. And the reason you can do it is because you believe in God. Faith is the antidote to worry, to care, to anxiousness, to depression, to discouragement, and all of these kind of things. And I, I don't know how to say this any way that uh, those who are in that situation probably will take offense and stuff. I don't mean it that way. I'm trying to help you and trying to help you get set free. But Jesus didn't say, don't let your heart be troubled unless you have a chemical imbalance, unless you have this problem and that problem. No, it was just a statement across the board. You are not to let your heart be troubled and how you do it is through faith. It is a lie. It's a deception to say that there is a chemical imbalance that makes you morbid and depressed. You're manic depressive and you can't help it. That is not true. I have had hundreds, I don't, I don't know for sure, but probably hundreds of testimonies of people who were manic depressive, people that were struggling, that listened to my teaching 
and they got hold of the truth and they got completely set free without medications, without any of these other things. They got delivered when they started believing God and focusing upon the good things. And see, Jesus, right after He told them to believe in God, notice what He said in verse 2 and 3. He says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Now, why did He say that? He had just said, Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And then He starts talking about heaven. I believe that part of the reason that he said it in this sequence and put these things together was to say that if you can't see anything good in your life, which most people could if they just would choose to do it, but let's say that you are one of those that really everything in your life is completely bad. There is nothing good going on in your life. I think that that's a wrong evaluation in 90-something percent of all cases. But if you are one of those few that everything is totally bad, then think about heaven. Think about that God is going to prepare a place for you. Jesus is building a mansion for you, not a little shack over in the corner of glory land. He's building a mansion for you. It's going to be beyond your wildest imagination. You are going to live forever in a place where there is no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more pain, no more problems. The streets are paved with transparent gold. You are going to be in perfection forever. And you know why I believe he mentioned that is if you are one of the few that honestly everything in the natural is bad, close your eyes and look at eternity. This is what Paul is saying over here. He says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment. I tell you, putting things into the light of eternity not only makes you more positive as you think about, this is only temporary, it's not going to last forever, but it'll also uh, change your evaluation on things. Some people obsess over things that aren't even important. You know, I've been keeping a journal for... I don't know, 18 years or something like that. And just this last week, I went back and read some of my previous journal entries. And did you know some of the things that were a problem to me four or five years ago or whatever, if I hadn't have written it down and have talked about it, I wouldn't have even remembered it. I had totally forgotten it. In the light of eternity, in the light of just my own life, in the light of just four or five years, it was really nothing. It's something that I had totally forgotten. It was insignificant. And yet on that day, that was a problem to me because I was focused on it. And one of the things that we need to do constantly is to put things into its proper perspective. And when you put it into the light of eternity, the thing that's bothering you today, is it going to be something that's going to affect you a thousand years from now in eternity? Is it going to be a make or break? Is it going to change anything? And many of you are thinking, well, no, compared to eternity, this is nothing. Well, then it's not that big of a deal. Just put it into the light of eternity and say, it'll come to pass. You know, that's one of my favorite verses. There's many times that it says, and it came to pass. That's why it came, was so that it could pass. <laughs> Amen. It's not going to last forever. It'll be over with. And someday this life will be over with. Your hurts and pains will be over with. The people who've rejected you will be over with. You will be in constant communion and fellowship with God. There will be such love that we can't even imagine 
all of the good things that are going to happen. And if you were to think about all of that, then you know what that does? It just shrinks your problem down to nothing. Your mind is like a set of binoculars. And if you look through the small end of those binoculars and out the large end, what it does, it just magnifies everything. Whatever your mind focuses on, it just begins to be magnified. And you can get so focused on this person at work who just agitates you and you can focus on it and think about it and think about it to where it becomes just this huge burden that you're bearing. Or you can turn those binoculars around, look through the exact same binoculars. And if you look through the big end and out the small end, you could take Pike's Peak, this huge mountain, and just shrink it down to where it's no little, it's just a little tiny thing. It's like you could reach over there and grab it and, and move it. Did you know your mind is like that? that if you focus on something and just dwell on it and think on it, whatever you focus on, it just gets magnified. Your mind is like a magnifying glass and it magnifies things. But whatever you neglect, you can turn those, you can turn those binoculars around and you can begin to start focusing on God and make God bigger. You know, there's scriptures that talk about, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together. That's Psalms one, uh, 34. I sought the Lord and He heard me and delivered me from all my fears. And you can magnify the Lord. What does that mean to magnify the Lord? Can you make God bigger? God is who He is regardless of what you think. Just because you don't think God heals today doesn't mean that God has trouble healing people. It just means that you won't get healed because you can't see it. You can't believe it. So God is who He is regardless of what you or I think. But as far as you're experiencing God and seeing His deliverance and power in your life, you can make God bigger. You can magnify God. You can get Him to where He is so used that the doctor says, you've got cancer and you're going to die. And you just think cancer is so insignificant. It's so small. It's nothing compared to God. Jesus has been exalted and given a name which is above every name, that at His name every knee has to bow. So Jesus is exalted above cancer. If you can put a name on it, Jesus is exalted above it, but you've got to magnify Him. How do you magnify Him? Psalms chapter 69, somewhere around verse 30, 31, 32, somewhere it says that you magnify Him with thanksgiving. And when you start thanking God and praising God, it makes God bigger. It focuses your attention upon God instead of on your problems. And God gets bigger and your problems get littler. See, this is what Paul is saying. He says, our light affliction, which is but for a moment. One of the ways that he made it a light affliction, a small affliction, an insignificant problem was that he focused on eternity and he put everything that was happening to him into the light of eternity. Did you know what? It makes it all worth it. It's all worth it. But boy, when you're in the midst of that suffering, if you're focused just on your problem, if you forget how that this is going to work for you, a far more exceeding and eternal way to glory, if you are just got blinders on and can only see the pain, the hurt, if you're just focused on that, you are magnifying your problem instead of magnifying God. Praise will turn those binoculars around. Praise will make you start focusing on what God is doing. And if you can't see God in your life at this moment in this physical world, well then if nothing else, think about eternity. 
The second thing he says here in verse 18, the reason it was just a light affliction is in verse 17. He says in verse 18, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal or temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And this is very closely related to what I was just talking about, but it's, it's still a little bit different. Instead of just looking at eternity and putting things into the bigger context, which shrinks your problems down, another thing you've got to do is look past the physical realm and see into the spiritual realm. And let's say, for instance, that you've got sickness in your body and it, we are so carnal, we are so dominated by our physical senses that if people have pain in their body, most people can't think beyond that pain. But what you've got to do is look past the pain. Look, go past your feelings and look at what the Word says. Praise is one of the things that makes you look beyond your problem and focus on the answer instead of your problem. Have you ever used one of these uh, 35 millimeter cameras or I guess today they don't, it's not anyway. They use these cameras and you, have, you focus through the lens and you can change your focus, your depth of field and I remember going to a, a zoo and taking pictures of like a lion and, and things like this. And you're behind a fence. You've got this fence in front of you. And you can either focus on the fence. And if you do, then everything else is blurred and all that stands out is the fence. But you can also focus beyond the fence on that animal that you were looking at beyond the fence. And when you get focused on it, it's like the fence just disappears. You can't even see it in your picture. It just fades, not because it's not there, but because you aren't focused upon it. And this is what you've got to do with your problems. I'm not denying that problems exist, but I'm saying I am not going to focus on my problem. I'm going to look beyond that problem and see God's supply. When other people were talking about the Great Recession and they were talking about it's the end of our economy and they were predicting all of these things, I didn't deny that that existed. I didn't deny that people got laid off and that there was problems and people were losing money in the stock market. I didn't deny that those things happened, but I wasn't focused on it. I was focused beyond that and God gave me a word. God spoke to me when other people were retracting and retreating, I was expanding. And it has been the most successful expansion we've ever made not because there's anything special about me. It's just that I wasn't focused on the same thing that everybody else was focused on. We had the largest expansion and increase that we have ever had in our ministry. And it's because I am looking at the things that can't be seen. I'm not denying the things I can see, but I am denying that that's all there is. There is more to it than what I see. When a doctor tells you that you've got something, I wouldn't sit there and deny and say, I don't have anything but I would look past that and say, you can't see what I have in my spirit. In my spirit, I've got the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And I refuse to be limited to just what the medical profession can do, to just what physical, natural things can do. I am not only natural, I am also supernatural. I've got the supernatural power of God living in me. And see, praise is what makes this happen. Praise focuses your attention beyond the physical and into the supernatural. If you were to receive all the things I'm saying and just you made a decision and said from now on, I'm going to praise God. 
I am going to start my prayer with praise. I'm going to end it with praise. And if I have a problem, I'll sandwich it in between these two things, but I am not going to be just focused on the negative. For you to make that decision and to follow through with it, it would force you to start looking at the answer instead of the problem. And this is what the Apostle Paul was talking about here. The reason his affliction was just a light affliction wasn't because he didn't have problems. It's because he focused beyond it. He put it into the light of eternity. He wasn't only looking at what could be seen. He was looking at uh, spiritual things, things that were going on behind the scenes. And because of it, Paul was able to rejoice even in the midst of terrible situations. Let me share this passage of Scripture with you out of the book of Colossians. And this is in Colossians chapter 2. And in verse 6, it says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in Him. And then verse 7 says, Rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. What are you abounding therein? If you go back and look at this, what he's talking about is rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, abounding therein, abounding in faith, uh, with thanksgiving. Now, I believe that there is some difference between thanksgiving and praise, but in a sense, you're splitting hairs. I don't believe that you can be thankful without also operating in praise. I mean, when you start giving thanks to God, you're praising God. So they are very closely intertwined. Look at this in Psalms 100. It says, Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, He is God. It is He that hath made us and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. Now again, there may be a difference between thanksgiving and praise, but you can't thank God without praising Him. Thanking Him is praising Him. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. Be thankful unto Him and bless His name for the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and His truth endureth to all generations. So I believe that thanksgiving and praise are, you know, they're inseparably tied together. So let me go back to Colossians chapter 2. You abound in faith with thanksgiving. When you start thanking God, it just causes faith to rise up on the inside of you. Matter of fact, the word abound here is talking about, you know, there are different levels of faith that you can operate in. I believe that we've all been given the faith of God. I've actually got a teaching on that. But you can operate in a little faith or a lot of faith. Your faith can be strong or your faith can be weak. And when you begin to start thanking God, it makes your faith abound. And there's multiple reasons for this. But one of, the, one of them is that just like I've been teaching all last week, when you go to praising God, you've got to go beyond your problem and focus on the answer instead of the problem. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. And for you to praise God, when you're in the midst of a negative situation, you've got to go beyond that problem and go to the Word of God, focus on the promises of God, and it makes your faith rise. You know, let me take an example that if you're given a death sentence and told that you've got cancer and that you're going to die or whatever, if you just sit there and think about 
what the doctor says. Think about the pain in your body. Go and remember other people who've died and get that image in your mind and go and research it on the internet and see how terrible these things are and what the odds of you living are and et cetera, et cetera. And if you just focus on the natural things, then it's going to minister doubt and unbelief. In the same way that faith comes by hearing the Word of God, Doubt and unbelief come by listening to anything other than the Word of God. And it doesn't matter if it's a nice person like a doctor, your family, people who love you and they mean well, but they come by and you can just see the pity and the sympathy in their heart. That'll kill you. If you focus on those things, that's how unbelief comes. But to focus on the Word of God is how faith comes. And if you just were to make a decision that, you know what, I'm going to bless the Lord at all times, Psalms 34, 1. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. I am going to rejoice always. And so you say, even though the doctor said this, Father, thank you. And if you start thanking the Lord, then you will have to look beyond what the doctor has said. You'll have to forget dear old Aunt Susie that died of this same thing. And you'll have to quit thinking about your funeral and what's going to happen to your kids after you're gone and are they going to be taken care of. You'll have to quit thinking those things because that doesn't make you be thankful. For you to be thankful, you're going to have to either, you're going to have to go beyond your problem and either think about that I'm going to be healed and you start focusing on the Word and people that overcame difficulties and problems and that'll build your faith. Or you'll have to start thinking about eternity that, Father, even if I never see my healing manifest, praise God, I am going to live forever in eternity. And you'll have to start praising Him for that. Praise, thanksgiving, makes your faith abound because it refocuses you. You cannot be thankful and uh, abound in praise looking at your problem. You've got to look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. Again, I go back to one of the very first verses I use, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. If you would think on those things, then it's like Colossians 2, verse 7 is saying, or verse 8, that you will abound in faith with thanksgiving. Your faith abounds when you start focusing upon what God has said. When you're thinking on the lovely, honest, pure, good things, when you are praising God, it makes your attention get upon the things of God. It makes you focus on God. You know, a friend of mine, Bob Nichols, he's on my board of directors. He's been ministering at our minister's conference with me for over 20-something years. And he's had some very bad things happen. One of the things, his daughter was in a wreck. It caused problems. She went into seizures and she's been quote unquote a vegetable for I don't know, 15 years or something. He's had around the clock care for her. He's had a lot of problems. And yet I was preaching on this very thing and saying, you need to praise God. Things are as good as they are. They could be worse. And right in the middle of it, he just stood up through his Bible on the ground. And he said, I've had all of this. I can stand. And he says, thank you, God, that things are so good. And he just started worshiping God and praising God. And yet he was in a situation that was worse probably than your situation. And yet he praised God. And people everywhere began to start hitting their knees and praising God because here was this man suffering more than they were and yet just so full of praise. 
I'm telling you, you need to be praising God. Praise is not an option. It's a necessity. Let me use this passage of scripture out of 2 Timothy chapter 3. And Paul here is talking about some of the signs of the end times. It says in verse 1, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. You know, I could spend a lot of time on all of these things. I think there's like 16 things listed here. And this is just like taking a newspaper today and look at this. And you can identify every single thing that is listed here in our current day. I believe that we are in the end times. And this is one of the reasons that I believe that is because of all the things that it's describing that would come. It's called some perilous times. And here's some of the things. Men shall be lovers of their own selves. I tell you, that is in epidemic proportions today. Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent. That just means uncontrollable, unable to restrain yourself. Fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. Boy, those are some powerful statements. But I just wanted to zero in on this second verse as it lists this, uh, all of these things that are characteristic of the last days and they're all negative things. They're all things that we are not supposed to tolerate. We are supposed to turn away from them is what he said. Look at this. In the midst of this, he says, disobedient to parents, then unthankful and unholy. He puts unthankful as being equivalent to being unholy. It's in the same category. It's in the same list. And yet today, people, they just think that, you know, if there was something good, then they would be thankful. They think it's just something that is, it's not essential. It's not something you make a conscious effort at doing. It just is a byproduct of circumstances and stuff. And that is not so. You have to make a deliberate effort to be thankful. And you know, again, I am not a perfect example on this. I don't ever want to try and present that. But this is something that is important to me. It's something I try and do. I try and thank people. You know, I'm, I'm out at places. I'll, I'll buy something at a store and I try and be nice to the clerk. And I try and thank them for what they're doing and tell them to have a good day and do things like this. And I know some people think, well, that's not essential. It is a godly characteristic to be thankful. To be unthankful is an ungodly characteristic. And I tell you, there are people today that are just unthankful. They are ungrateful. I heard a story one time. It was on a teaching that I was listening to and it was a man talking about how that he actually was so upset with his wife that he was contemplating divorcing her. And this was a pastor of a church. But his wife didn't teach a class. She didn't play the piano. She didn't sing. She wasn't your typical pastor's wife. She wasn't an asset to him the way that he saw some other pastor's wives being. And he was thinking she didn't study the Word enough. She wasn't spiritual enough. And this man actually was contemplating divorce and thinking of going and getting him another wife that would be a greater asset to him in the ministry. 
But he knew that that kind of thinking had to be wrong. And so he finally in prayer just said, God, something's wrong here. I need your help. Help me to deal with this because I really am feeling like my wife is just no good. And he was struggling with it. And so the Lord spoke to him as he was praying. And he says, for two weeks, I don't want you to pray and ask me to change her and make her like this and like this other pastor's wife and all these things. I want you to quit asking me to change her. And every day I want you just to start thanking me for something good in your wife. And he said that the very first day he couldn't think of anything good. And he said, God, I can't see one good thing in my wife. He says, I need your help. Help me to see something good. And so the first day the Lord spoke to him and he says, she's never cheated on you. She's been faithful to you for 20 or 30 years or whatever it is. You've never had to deal with her being unfaithful. So the first day he started praising God and he says, thank you that my wife has been faithful to me and she's never committed adultery. I've never had a problem with that. And he praised God for that. The next day he had to ask help and the Lord says, well, just think about how that she has dealt with these kids and she has raised these kids and has put her life into those kids while you were traveling and ministering. She has raised the kids. So he started thanking God for that. And then the next day, you know, just one thing after the other. And anyway, after two weeks of focusing on all of the good things in his wife, this man said that he was just on his face before God saying, God, thank you for such a godly wife. I don't know how I could have ever thought of divorcing her. She's so awesome. And it was just the fact that he was focusing on what she wasn't doing instead of what she was doing. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, there are plenty of negatives. We live in a fallen world. There's always going to be something that could be better, but there, it could always be worse. You need to develop this habit of just being thankful like we were reading over there. It is an tr ungodly trait to be unthankful. And I'm saying this in love, but I'm telling you that there are many of you that you are unthankful, you are ungrateful, Sure, there's things in your life that could be better and probably should be better and that you should be praying and believing God for improvement. But you ought to be thanking God that things are as good as they are. It could be much, much worse. You need to be thankful. You need to start praising God. And if you would do that, it would just refocus your attention away from the problem. It would put it on the answer. Your faith would begin to abound you would start changing your whole attitude. The Bible says over in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. Those things are already on the inside of you. But your soul determines whether what's in your spirit is going to dominate you or what's outside is going to dominate you. And your soul, your mind, the way you focus on things either releases this life that's on the inside of you or it shuts it off. And I'm telling you that when you start deliberately praising God and being thankful unto Him, it's just like opening up the spigot. It's, it allows this love, joy, and peace that's on the inside of you to come up and it will keep your hearts and minds. A peace that passes understanding. Praise is one of the most important things that you can do.